Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. There must have been hundreds of phone calls before this one. Thousands of hours that Tony Natale spent with Keith Raniere on the other end of the line. The two met in 1991 at a seminar that 31-year-old Keith threw to extol the virtues of his multi-level marketing company, Consumers Byline, or CBI. 33-year-old Tony was drawn in by Keith's vision, his intellect. So she signed up. And within a few months, she was one of CBI's best sellers. And now, after thousands of dollars worth of sales and hundreds of phone calls, Keith wanted more. He asked Tony to move to Albany to work for CBI full-time. Tony pushed back on this, reminding him of her son, her husband. She couldn't just relocate. At that, Keith responded, I feel like you're meant to help me change the world. Tony was confused. She was a high school dropout, a housewife. Keith was the CEO of a million-dollar company. He had an IQ higher than Einstein's, and yet he was picking her to help him change the world? Keith told Tony there were different types of intelligence. He told her he needed her. She was special. That refrain, the insistence on an insecure woman's uniqueness, was one Keith had used time and time again. In almost every instance, the phrase acted as a sort of open sesame, a magical incantation that made women give him their trust, money, and devotion. Tony Natale would be no different. She'd become just one in a long line of women upon which Keith Raniere built his predatory empire. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. For the next two weeks, we're taking a deep dive into a modern cult called Nexium. The group made headlines for reportedly physically branding its celebrity-laden membership and coercing them into being sex slaves, all to satisfy its narcissistic leader, Keith Raniere. In this episode, we'll explore how the seeds of Keith's deviance were planted in his childhood. Then we'll cover his allegedly abusive relationship with his girlfriend, Tony Natale. Finally, we'll detail the genesis of the self-improvement company that would go on to become Nexium. Over the course of the next three episodes, we'll track Nexium's rise, its early abuse of members, and finally, the cult's ignominious collapse. We've got all this and more coming up. Stay with us. Keith Raniere was always drawn to vulnerable women. Born in Brooklyn, New York in 1960, Keith's affinity for damsels in distress began in childhood. His first woman he ever swooped in to rescue was his mother, Vera. Vera was a dance teacher with a heart condition. Her illness made her the ultimate maiden in need of saving, and Keith proved himself up to the challenge. 
According to Keith, Veer was an alcoholic. He claimed he constantly had to take care of her, as reported by Susanna Andrews in Vanity Fair. Keith's father, James, an advertising executive, refuted his son's account. While he allowed that Vera perhaps drank more than she should have, he didn't think she had a drinking problem. Whatever the situation in the Ranieri household, both Vera and James tried their best to provide their son and only child with a good education. Suspecting he might be intellectually advanced, they had Keith tested sometime around age seven or eight. After receiving the results, James and Vera reportedly sat their son down and told him that he was gifted. In an interview with CBC Radio Canada's Josh Block for his investigative podcast series, Uncover, Escaping Nexium, former longtime member and ex-girlfriend of Keith, Barbara Boucher, recalled Keith's father saying, it was almost like a switch went off, and suddenly overnight he turned into like Jesus Christ, superior and better than everyone, like he was a deity. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Researchers Eddie Brummelman and Brad Bushman, in a study on the development of narcissistic personality disorder, found that when children are seen by their parents as being more special than other children, they may internalize the view that they're superior individuals, a view that is at the core of narcissism. This was certainly the case with Keith. After his parents told him he was gifted, he believed that meant he was better than everyone else. It wasn't long before Keith's arrogant attitude bled over into the way he interacted with his peers at school. In an interview with Epic Times reporter Bowen Zhao, a former classmate who attended grade school with Keith stated, he was always bragging about how smart he was, how much better at math. He walked around like he was a miniature professor. Another peer seconded this opinion, saying, Keith was sort of a show-off. He would always try to outdo someone. It's likely these displays of arrogance were byproducts of Keith's belief in his intellectual superiority. However, he might have also been acting out at school in response to trouble at home, because in 1968, eight-year-old Keith watched his parents get a divorce. After their separation, Keith moved into a house with his mother. Once it was just the two of them, her drinking escalated. According to Barbara Boucher in her interview with Block, Keith learned to become a nocturnal person because of his mother. In his teenage years, he would kind of like need to watch or care for her in the evening because she would sometimes take medicine and drugs and drink. Perhaps it was this unhealthy dynamic that caused Keith to escalate his antagonistic behavior at school. Whatever the reason, according to interviews with his peers, by the time Keith was 9 or 10, he was no longer satisfied with just bragging. He'd graduated to outright taunting them. A former classmate who only identified herself to Zhao by the initials LM told a disturbing story about Keith. She referred to it as the bottle incident. One day, L.M. was sitting on the bus next to a young Keith when she let slip a closely guarded secret about her sister. Initially, L.M. didn't worry. After all, they were all friends, so she didn't think Keith would try to use the information against her. She was wrong. Later that very same day, Keith approached L.M. and said, You know, it's like I have this little bottle of poison I can hold over your head. 
Confused, LM asked him what he meant. Keith explained, Well, I don't know. I just don't think your parents or your sister would be very happy if I told them. But LM couldn't figure out what he wanted. It wasn't like he was demanding anything. It wasn't blackmail. It just seemed like he enjoyed having something over her. It was like he got off on the power. According to LM, Keith didn't stop there. He'd call her sometimes, entirely out of the blue, and repeat the same two words, little bottles. Just that, over and over again, little bottles. With those words, Keith reminded her that he knew something and he could use it against her at will. The harassment reportedly continued until LM broke down and told her mother. It was only after her intervention that the phone calls finally came to an end. Despite the darkness hinted at by Keith's behavior, he did have another side, softer and more solicitous. It was the side that emerged when he danced with his mother, when he took care of her late into the night. It was the side of himself that he began revealing to his peers when he entered his teenage years. Block explores this aspect of Keith's history in his series on Nexium. According to Boucher, Vera had a front row seat to 13-year-old Keith's new way of interacting with his classmates, more specifically, the young girls of his class. But far from being glad her son was no longer antagonizing his peers, Vera seemed worried. One night, she apparently called her ex-husband James in a panic. Barbara recalled James telling her, quote, Dozens of young girls were calling the house and she was overhearing his conversations with them where he was telling every single woman, every single girl, the same thing. You're the special one. You're the important one in my life and I love you. And she says, and he's saying this to different girls. He's clearly lying because they're not all special. Vera was disturbed. Obviously, Keith couldn't love all those girls simultaneously, which meant her son was a liar. Not only that, but he was a good liar. Renowned psychologist Dr. Robert Hare created a 20-point checklist of traits that are endemic amongst psychopaths. Pathological lying, manipulativeness, and a grandiose sense of self can all be found on the list and in Keith's character. His arrogant behavior after learning his IQ results suggested an inflated sense of self. The Little Bottles incident hinted at a taste for power games. Lastly, his lies to dozens of teenage girls proved a capacity for deceitfulness. Still, it would have been premature to brand any 13-year-old as a psychopath. However, as he grew into adulthood, Keith continued to prove just how apt such a classification might have been. In 1984, Keith was still seducing teenage girls, except now he was much older. According to reporting by Times Union journalists, James M. Odato and Jennifer Gish, when Keith was 24, he met 15-year-old Gina Melita in a community theater troupe in Troy, New York. Keith made a pass at the young girl during a trip with some friends from the theater, running his hands over her face and legs. Despite her intelligence at 15, Gina didn't have the life experience to be disturbed by an adult man putting the moves on her. In fact, according to Odato and Gish's article, she thought it was cool to be with an older, smart guy. They started dating, going to local arcades together and playing games. But Keith wasn't hanging out with Gina so they could only indulge in age-appropriate activities. He wanted something far more adult. 
And shortly after they started dating, Keith had sex with Gina in a dark room with a deadbolted door. The experience was painful. Gina, left with flecks of blood on her t-shirt, was shocked by how much it hurt. Despite her discomfort, 24-year-old Keith insisted they do it again. He continued hounding the 15-year-old for sex, despite the fact that the age of consent in New York State was 17, and Keith was committing statutory rape. Ultimately, suspecting there was something wrong with the relationship, Gina broke things off. Keith accepted her decision, but suggested that the two continue having sex. According to Gish in Odato's article, that was when Gina realized that Keith didn't care about her at all. She was right. With this predatory relationship, Keith checked off one more box on Hare's benchmark, a complete lack of empathy. At around the same time Gina broke things off with Keith, he started working at the multi-level marketing company Amway. According to Keith's friend, Eric J. Rood, in his interview with Block, shortly after his stint at Amway, Keith began talking about founding a company of his own that mirrored the MLM structure. It was also during this time that the first seeds of Keith's cult following were planted. He started holding court at his townhouse in Clifton Park, New York. Keith led long philosophical sessions, transforming the staid structure into a sort of hippie hangout. Dozens of young women showed up at the house to listen to him talk. In addition to vague dreams about improving Amway's structure, Keith also discussed the human potential movement. Block defined this philosophy as the idea of unlocking people's untapped abilities and how it can bring about positive change in the world. It was this topic that most appealed to the listening women, especially because Keith claimed he saw great potential in them. According to one of his friends from that time, Keith often encouraged the women at these sessions to fulfill whatever their gifts and talents might be. It's no surprise then that the young women started to see Keith as a sort of guru. Before long, they were discussing how he might brand himself as such and marry his goals of founding an MLM organization with his desires to help people reach their full potential. Eventually, a consensus was reached. Everybody agreed that Keith should take another IQ test. It's likely they believed that doing so would bolster his credibility, allowing him to start the business of his dreams. Journalist Irene Gardner Keeney wrote for the Albany Times Union that in 1987, 27-year-old Keith took a 48-question IQ test crafted by the Mega Society. After turning it in, Keith got 46 out of 48 questions right. This put his IQ at an enviable 178. For context, it's believed that Albert Einstein had an IQ of 160. Thus, with a score of 178, Keith proved himself smarter than the man who developed the theory of relativity, as far as the test was concerned. However, even catapulting above such rarefied company wasn't enough for Keith. And soon, he claimed that he had an IQ in the stratospheric 240 range. One year later, Keith was included in the Australian edition of the Guinness Book of World Records as the man with the highest IQ. The local Albany newspapers covered the unexpected discovery of a genius within their midst, with all the usual restraint of the press. 
In other words, they ran a headline calling Keith a one in 10 million intellect. It didn't seem to matter to the breathless reporters that the test that supposedly proved Keith's intelligence was one of the untimed take-home variety, nor did anyone bother to check the supposed genius's college credentials. If they had, they would have discovered that Keith graduated from college with a GPA of 2.26. But in 1988, none of those facts mattered. 28-year-old Keith Ranieri leveraged the publicized mega-society test results and his inclusion in the Guinness Book of World Records to brand himself the smartest man in the world. It was this moniker that allowed him to establish the first of his predatory enterprises. Next, Keith preys on a vulnerable woman in a bid to grow his first business. Now, back to the story. In 1988, after taking the Mega Society IQ test, 28-year-old Keith Ranieri was finally able to substantiate his claims of being a genius. Soon after, he branded himself the smartest man in the world and set about figuring out how to capitalize on it. By 1990, 30-year-old Keith had landed on an angle, or rather a brand new company. He called it Consumers Byline. Like Amway, Consumers Byline was a multi-level marketing company. It promised to deliver deep discounts on household products to its members. Like other MLMs before it, the company also promised members financial incentives for recruiting new affiliates. Though Keith was passionate about Consumers Byline, it hardly seemed a lofty enough endeavor for the smartest man in the world, which is exactly what 32-year-old Tony Natale thought as she sat in a stuffy ballroom at the Holiday Inn in Rochester, New York. Tony had only agreed to attend the seminar because her husband, Rusty, insisted. Ever since adopting their baby boy three years earlier, they'd been going through a rough patch, so she was loath to disappoint him. On seeing Keith assume the stage, the first thing she noticed was how short he was. Equally unimpressed, Tony's husband snickered that he looked like a geek. However, as Keith began to pitch, all of Tony's reservations faded away. She was captivated. To her, Keith's intellect, his singularity, was undeniable. After the presentation, Tony approached Keith and asked, You have a 240 IQ. Why aren't you curing cancer? Why aren't you changing the world? Keith responded, I am changing the world. Don't you want to come along? And Tony and her husband were hooked. They both signed up and got to work selling CBI memberships and extolling its world-changing virtues to all who would listen. By the summer of 1991, Tony and her husband were so successful selling CBI memberships that Keith awarded them with the company's top regional salesman prize. Along with clout, the award came with a $16,000 cash grant. Curious about the inner workings of the company they'd expended so much effort promoting, Tony and her husband decided to fly to CBI's headquarters in Clifton Park, New York, to see it for themselves. The outside of the CBI offices were uninspiring. Inside, however, was a wonder. It was the early 90s and computers were still a rarity. And yet, Tony marveled as dozens of CBI employees tapped away at multiple computer terminals. Everyone seemed excited to be there. Furthermore, Tony was pleasantly surprised to notice that Keith seemed to have more female employees than male ones. One of the women even had her daughter with her, 
12 years old with braces and blonde hair. Tony watched as the young girl thumbed through an algebra textbook. Tony learned that Keith was periodically taking time out of his busy schedule to tutor the girl in math. Before Tony could comment on Keith's magnanimity, the man himself burst out of his office. Keith's glasses were askew, his shirt untucked. And still, Tony was in awe of him. She was touched that a high-powered CEO would take the time to mentor a young girl. Unbeknownst to Tony, mentorship didn't at all explain the dynamic between 31-year-old Keith and the 12-year-old girl Tony met at his office. According to later court documents, Keith was a sexual predator. In 1991, when Tony met the young blonde girl, he'd already been raping her for an entire year. He had indeed gained access to the child by offering to tutor her in algebra and Latin. Instead, behind her mother's back, Keith first taught the girl how to hug the way adults did, pelvis to pelvis, and then he took her virginity. According to the Times Union, Keith continued sexually assaulting the young girl, not only in his townhouse, but in empty offices, in an elevator, and in a broom closet at the plaza that housed Consumer's Byline. As Tony walked out of Consumer's Byline and into the parking lot, she had no idea that Keith was a sexual predator. On the contrary, she considered him a new friend. That's why after the Clifton Park visit, Tony began spending hours at a time talking to Keith on the phone. Tony's husband, Rusty, was bemused by the frequency of Keith's calls, but he wasn't threatened. Keith was short and dorky. However, Rusty didn't anticipate that what Keith lacked in height, he made up for in his boundless ability to listen. Tony had never been listened to so closely by anyone, so she talked. She told Keith that Rusty hadn't made love to her in two years. She confided in him her insecurities about being a high school dropout. Lastly, she trusted him enough to share that she'd been sexually abused when she was four years old. Keith took all of her shame, all of her insecurities, and told Tony that she was special. It didn't matter that she was a high school dropout. She had emotional intelligence. And for that reason, he needed her. Keith asked Tony to move to Albany, work for CBI full-time, and help him change the world. Keith would later dub his method of soothing a person's emotional triggers integration. It would serve as a key strategy for the acquisition of information under the guise of helping followers process trauma. But for now, he was still working out the kinks in his technique. Maybe that's why Tony initially refused Keith's alluring offer. A couple of months later, however, after her husband's business went belly up, she asked her CEO best friend for financial help. Keith claimed he couldn't sign off on any loans unless she met with his business manager in Clifton Park. Grateful for even the hope of financial aid, Tony agreed. And just like that, Keith got exactly what he wanted. Tony, on a plane by herself, en route to Clifton Park. When she got there, Tony found that Keith's house in Clifton Park was filthy. The trash cans were overflowing with garbage. The dishes boasted week-old congealed food, and there seemed to be clothes haphazardly strewn across the floors. On taking in the foulness of the place, Tony was likely forced to conclude that the smartest man in the world apparently didn't know how to use soap. 
The second thing Tony noticed was Keith's female roommates. He still lived with his ex-girlfriend, Karen Unterreiner, and of the years since college, two more had joined her number. Pam K. Fritz, a slightly ditzy brunette who happened to be the daughter of influential DC socialites, and Kristen Keefe, an audacious blonde with mischievous eyes. Tony found the setup strange, a grown man with a successful business living with three women. But she told herself Keith was a bit of an oddball. Besides, women and men could be friends. Didn't her friendship with Keith prove as much? Shortly after her arrival, Keith took her to the meeting with his business partner, George Weiss, just as he promised. But he didn't sign off on a loan like Tony expected. Instead, he offered her a job running a new skincare business that Keith was hoping to add on to CBI. While the salary of the role was generous enough to allow Tony to pay off her husband's debt, there was a massive catch. It required her to permanently relocate to Clifton Park. It seemed every single road kept leading back to that same demand. Though Tony was tempted by the money, she still wasn't sure she could leave behind her life in Rochester. Sure, her husband and son would move with her, but her brother, friends, and business contacts, they would all remain back home. Wanting to buy herself some time to talk with her family, Tony promised she would seriously consider the job offer. At that point, Keith generously offered to accompany her to her hotel. Inside that small room at the Best Western, the real reason Keith Ranieri had summoned Tony to Clifton Park revealed itself. The meeting with Weiss? It was over before it began. But Keith kept Tony in that hotel room for hours. She had no idea how much time had elapsed since they'd entered. 12 hours? 13? Time didn't exist. Tony didn't exist. The only things that existed were Keith's eyes and the questions he insisted she answer. He wanted her to tell him about the sexual abuse she'd suffered as a child. So Tony told the story again and again. She told Keith she was four when her uncle assaulted her. She told him that it lasted for years, and yet no matter what she said or how she said it, the explanation was never enough. Keith always had another question. Tony begged him for a break, a moment to close her eyes, gather her thoughts, she didn't even understand why they were doing this, why he was making her talk about the worst thing that had ever happened to her. Keith told her he wanted to make it better, to ease her pain. Then he asked her to tell him the painful story again, from the top. Tony broke down crying. She couldn't do it. She couldn't relive it again. It hurt too much. She was exhausted. At the sight of her tears, Keith went to her. He told her that he could help her. He would help her. But she had to take the job. She had to move to Clifton Park. At that point, it just seemed easier to say yes. So, defeated, Tony agreed. Yes, she would take the job. Yes, she would move to Clifton Park. It's not surprising that Tony capitulated to Keith's demands. A study by researchers Pam Lowe, Kathy Humphreys, and Simon J. Williams found a connection between sleep deprivation and the establishment of a regime of power and control by one person over another. 
In a follow-up study, they also discovered that sleep deprivation was a direct strategy of abuse used by perpetrators to undermine the mental and physical resilience of women. This meant that though Keith wasn't physically abusing Tony, his emotional abuse was just as harmful. Unfortunately, Tony interpreted his malevolence as compassion. Over the next five months, Tony worked full-time for CBI. She and Keith traveled the country, giving seminars about the life-changing virtues of the company. All the time spent away from her husband and child meant that Tony felt closer to Keith than anyone else. Nevertheless, a relationship between them seemed impossible. Tony was married. However, according to Tony's book, The Program, one afternoon, Keith looked deep into her eyes and told her he was in love with her. In response to his declaration, Tony nearly gasped. She couldn't believe that the smartest man in the world was in love with her, a high school dropout. Any doubts she had, however, were disabused when Keith kissed her. Not long after that first kiss, Tony divorced Rusty. The decision felt like it had been a long time coming. In mid-1992, after 33-year-old Tony left her husband, Kristen Keefe, one of Keith's roommates, helped Tony find a house in their neighborhood. Her new home was so close to Keith's that he could walk from his backyard into hers. 32-year-old Keith took advantage of their proximity immediately. The first night in Tony's new home, the two made love. Unlike Rusty, who hadn't touched Tony in years, Keith was insatiable. His desire for Tony likely acted as a soothing balm after years of being ignored. In addition to the physical evidence of Keith's love, Tony was showered with verbal declarations. Keith told her over and over again that he loved her. She completed him. She was special. The next morning in the parking lot of CBI, Tony was still basking in the afterglow. She leaned over and kissed her new boyfriend on the cheek. Keith instantly pushed her away. Confused, Tony asked him what was wrong. Keith told her they had to hide their relationship. Otherwise, people would think she'd slept her way into the esteemed job she held at CBI. After all, that did seem a more likely explanation, given the fact that she was just a high school dropout. Tony received his words almost as a physical slap. Keith had told her that her lack of official credentials didn't matter. He said she was special. Just when she felt confident and secure in his love, he yanked the rug out from under her. Tony didn't know it yet, but this was just the beginning. Soon, Keith Raniere would show her the entirety of his true face. Up next, Tony discovers the depth of Keith's depravity. Now back to the story. In mid-1992, 32-year-old Keith Ranieri convinced 33-year-old Tony Natale to leave her husband and move to Clifton Park, New York, to work for his company, Consumers Byline. However, the minute Tony did so, Keith changed the rules of their relationship. Namely, their romantic entanglement had to remain a secret. While Tony was still reeling from this development in her personal life, things began to unravel in the professional sphere as well. On May 21, 1992, the Albany Times Union released an article dubbing Consumers Byline a Pyramid Scheme. 
The article alleged that CBI was being investigated by authorities in New York and Maine and had been sued by the Arkansas Attorney General. Like all true narcissists, Keith responded to this attack on his ego with rage. He called the journalists liars and the state attorneys general vindictive. In her book, Tony wrote that Keith even went as far as recording and disseminating a five-minute message to all CBI members, trumpeting his high ethical standards. Keith's employees believed him, but Keith himself wasn't satisfied. According to Tony's book, he became increasingly paranoid. He accused the government of spying on him, of opening his mail, and of tapping his phones. His behavior at home was even worse. Keith would let himself into Tony's house at all hours of the night. Then he'd shake her awake and demand, quote, physical comfort. After months of this erratic behavior, Tony had had enough. She was tired of his outbursts, his demands, and his continued refusal to acknowledge their relationship in public. However, Keith Ranieri didn't shake easily. He convinced Tony to take him back by agreeing to claim her publicly. He even conceded to the two of them moving into their own house. Tony should have been thrilled. After all, she was getting everything she wanted. And yet, as she moved into a brand new home with her son and Keith, she couldn't shake the feeling that she was making a huge mistake. A few years later, in 1997, it looked as though Tony had made the right decision in staying with Keith. Sure, CBI had crumbled under the weight of the many lawsuits leveled against it, but 37-year-old Keith and Tony had started a successful new business selling nutritional supplements. Even more promising, the two had purchased a beautiful home in a nice neighborhood where they raised Tony's son Michael together. From the outside, things looked fantastic. The view from inside that beautiful house, however, was much darker. After three years of living with Keith, Tony was beginning to understand that there was something very wrong with him. For starters, he refused to do any chores whatsoever. He just sat around the house and expected Tony to wait on him. Secondly, he was practically nocturnal, staying up all hours of the night and sleeping through the day. But that wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it was like that old parable of being careful what you wished for. Tony's ex-husband, Rusty, hadn't touched her. Keith, on the other hand, was insatiable. And it was great. It was awesome. Until it wasn't. According to Tony, Keith demanded sex every single day. And when she didn't want to, Keith raped her. It got so bad that sometimes Tony resorted to barricading herself in the closet just to get away from him. She didn't know what to do. She had no one to talk to. And then she met Nancy Salzman. In 1997, after struggling with severe constipation, Nancy Salzman visited the nutritional supplements business Tony ran with Keith. After Tony prescribed her the perfect cocktail of supplements, Nancy wanted to return the favor offering her own area of expertise. According to an interview Tony Natale gave to the cut journalist Katie Heaney, Nancy billed herself as the number two neuro-linguistic programming expert in the world, and she presented herself as a therapist. In this capacity, she'd been sought out by executives from esteemed companies like Con Edison and American Express. Desperate to talk to someone about Keith and reassured by Nancy's impressive credentials, 
Tony agreed to meet with her. At their first session, Tony told Nancy about Keith's erratic behavior, his refusal to maintain normal sleeping hours, though she left out his constant sexual assaults. In response, Nancy smiled and said, Oh, that's easy. Your boyfriend is a psychopath. Then Nancy told Tony she could help her and suggested that the two start having regular therapy sessions. However, by their very next session, Nancy had completely changed her tune. Instead of repeating her diagnosis of Keith being a psychopath, Nancy stated that the problems in Tony's relationship stemmed from Tony herself. Nancy believed that Tony had intimacy issues due to the sexual abuse she'd suffered as a child. And it was weird, because Tony had never told Nancy about her childhood trauma. But she was so grateful when Nancy offered to help her deal with the trauma that it didn't occur to her to question where Nancy had gotten the information. It also didn't occur to Tony to wonder where Nancy's complete 180 on Keith was coming from. Had she dug deeper, Tony might have realized that Nancy's change of heart was due to Keith himself. In fact, by the time she sat down with Nancy for her second session, Keith had already gotten his hooks into her. After Tony's first session with Nancy, she had made the mistake of telling Keith about it. Unbeknownst to her, he went behind her back and booked his own session with a neurolinguistic programmer. Three more sessions between Keith and Nancy quickly followed the first. And throughout each session, Keith likely put his greatest strength to work. He listened. If that were the case, he probably learned that Nancy was going through a difficult time in her life. Her first marriage had failed years prior, and now her second one was breaking down because her husband was leaving her for another man. Since vulnerable and insecure women were Keith's particular specialty, maybe he provided Nancy with a shoulder to cry on. Maybe he reassured her. Perhaps he even told Nancy that she was special. Whatever the case, in her book, The Program, Tony hypothesized that it was likely during these four sessions that Keith learned the other important detail about Nancy. Her qualifications were completely fabricated. Nancy's corporate clients saw her polish and competence, and they assumed she was a psychologist like she claimed. But that was fiction. Nancy's only training was in hypnotherapy and neurolinguistic programming which would later be disdained by the scientific community as pseudoscience, akin to astrology. On learning about her falsified credentials, Keith's arsenal of weapons would have been complete. On the one hand, he had the carrot, his soothing tone, his listening ear, his insistence that Nancy was special. But should she step out of line, Keith had the stick at the ready, like the little bottles he held over his friend's head as a child. So, too, could he wield the threat of exposing Nancy's duplicity and ruining the credibility she'd worked so hard to build. In light of all that, it's no surprise that Nancy fell completely under Keith Ranieri's spell. In February of 1998, three months after meeting Nancy Salzman, 38-year-old Keith Ranieri decided to start his next business venture with her. Tony didn't push back on the bizarre development of her therapist going into business with her abusive boyfriend, likely because Nancy had adequately convinced Tony that the problems in her relationship with Keith were her fault. 
That allowed both Keith and Nancy to start drawing up plans for their new company, Executive Success Programs. According to Tony's book, Keith had decided that saving consumers' money was too pedestrian for a singular genius and too fraught with legal minefields. Life coaching, executive success, and self-improvement hokum, that was the way to go. Like consumers' byline before it, Keith decided executive success programs would also have a multi-level marketing structure. However, this time, instead of having members shill household products, they'd be selling self-improvement technology. This so-called scientific coursework would be similar to the neuro-linguistic programming that Nancy offered her corporate clients. However, as Keith built yet another new company, his relationship with Tony continued to unravel. Things finally came to a head in April 1999. On an afternoon in April, Keith and Tony had a blowout argument over a shrunken sweater. Despite the frivolousness of the subject matter, the fight highlighted the main issues Tony had with the entire relationship. Keith was dismissive, egotistical, and cruel. She broke up with him for good. Keith retaliated by leveling a number of spurious lawsuits her way. But that was just his bruised ego talking. In truth, 39-year-old Keith had already moved on. Tony would remain a sore spot, a living reminder of the game he didn't win, the woman he couldn't dominate. But the world had no shortage of vulnerable women, and Keith understood the importance of picking his marks deliberately. If his future goals were as nails before him, in Nancy, Keith had found his hammer. She was a corporate animal, polished, competent, and like him, she had the ability to manipulate people to her ends. With Nancy, Keith knew he could accomplish so much more than he had with all the others. Together, the two of them had already devised a new kind of self-improvement technology one that Keith would later claim could help people become Oscar-winning actresses, Olympic meddling athletes, and successful entrepreneurs. With promises like that, Keith knew they were going to turn executive success programs into a multi-level marketing empire. And like officers in the Army were given titles as they progressed up the ranks, so too did Keith seek to adorn his new right-hand woman. He decided that Nancy's new name in the organization would be Prefect. As for Keith himself, ESP's future members would call him Vanguard. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back on Thursday with the second episode of our four-part special. We'll cover how Keith used Nexium to lure two billionaire heiresses and one Hollywood actress into his web. For more information on Keith Ranieri, amongst the many sources we used, we found the program Inside the Mind of Keith Ranieri and the Rise and Fall of Nexium by Tony Natale with Chet Hardin, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Abigaili Ademegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.